Welcome to Tribcast, the flagship podcast of the Lacrosse Tribune. I'm digital news editor Scott Rada, and we're having a little fun today. We are talking wine, and we have the two Tribune wine columnists here, Chris and Sherry Hardy. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. And we are also joined by one of the smartest men in our newsroom about wine, uh, executive editor Rusty Cunningham. Just a big fan. I did a little research before uh, you came in, Chris and Sherry, about the wine column. It's been running in our paper since 2003. That's correct. And I don't think you've ever missed a week. We have not. We're pretty devoted uh, to our wine column. Well, we, and I'm, the Tribune appreciates that, and I'm sure our many readers do as well. Um, one thing I will mention, too, if anybody's listening, please head to our website. We'll include a link to each and every one of those columns that you've written, um, at least in the past year. And I'm sure if folks can poke around and find ones even all the way back to 2003. Um, today, you actually brought in a bottle of wine that is being featured in this Sunday's newspaper. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So this is a Spanish red. Uh, it is uh, from the Yumila uh, district in Spain, and it is uh, half Monastrell and half Syrah are the grape varieties. And that, that, those aren't varieties especially that you hear as much about. Is this a, a, a wine that uh, might be new to a lot of our listeners? It is an uncommon varietal uh, for uh, some of the Spanish reds um, because the normal Spanish red is made out of uh, Tempranillo is the national grape of Spain. And is it, here's an important question, is it more fun to talk about wine or is it more fun to drink it? Obviously more fun to drink it. We like to make sure that we're very diverse in, in our selections of wines. So we like to, to cover all of the countries in the world. We also look for, uh, for reds uh, and whites. We want to introduce uh, readers to wines maybe they've never heard of before. Uh, but more importantly, to feature wines that they can buy uh, locally, uh, so that they have an opportunity uh, to sample them. Well, I think that's a perfect lead-in to uh, giving some of this a try. I'd also like to say that our column is about introducing people to wines that we have tried and we like and we think they might like. Uh, once we got a critical remark from someone who said, why don't you trash anybody's wine? That's not the purpose of the column. If we were to open a wine and came across something we did not like, we would not feature it. We're not going to say something bad about someone else's wine. So we, we hope only to say good things about this one, and it's hard. Maybe you can describe a little bit. You're not pouring it directly into the glass. You're using, an, is that an aerator? It is an aerator. Uh, so a big red wine like this. When I say big red, uh, there's a lot of tannins in this wine. And to make it open up and display flavors, you want to make sure that you're softening those tannins. And so we use an aerator, which gives that wine oxygen. And what you're hearing is just some oxygen that's being poured into that wine and that allows the flavors to fully open and develop. And that does it instantly. If you don't have an aerator, you would want to think ahead and try to uh, plan ahead so that you're pouring your wine out into a carafe or mm. something uh, at least 30 minutes ahead of time, or in even up to as long as three hours ahead of time for that oxygen to hit the surface of the wine. Cheers and thanks for coming in.
Rusty just wanted to went right to drinking. So, what, what Rusty doing is doing, however, is the proper way is he's smelling the wine first. So you want to stick your nose into that glass because the aroma of the wine and the bouquet of the wine is an important part of tasting the wine. And as a somebody, folks who have been doing this for a long time, what, what smells are you getting from that? So I'm picking up uh, some elements of raisin and cherry and a little bit of earthiness uh, that's coming through uh, on, the, uh, on the nose of this wine. Yeah, definitely uh, cherry, uh, fruit-forward cherry. So what's interesting is you've written a whole lot of columns, the two of you, and yet you rarely repeat a wine. That is correct. I think we've only had a handful of repeats. And, of course, it's not really a repeat in the sense that every vintage uh, is unique, but we have uh, only a few times repeated a wine. And what that says, and again, you've talked about affordability and availability, so what that says really is there are a lot of different types, red and white, different styles that complement different foods that are available locally that uh, are a lot of fun to try. And and one of the great things about your column is you're always looking at different uh, varietals so that people can just try a bottle, and maybe it doesn't suit them, maybe it doesn't complement the dinner, but you know what, at least they've tried something different. And I think that's a positive aspect of what the two of you write about. We have really tried to, uh, again, as Sherry alluded to, our purpose is to introduce people to wine, and we're not there. If we truly have a wine that we don't enjoy, and there's only been a handful of them, I think, over the years where we've just said, we're not going to drink this wine uh, because uh, because we just feel like we wouldn't tell somebody else to drink a wine that, that we personally wouldn't drink. And That's I think right. we've had a couple of spoiled bottles. Yeah, we've definitely opened corked bottles, um, and that's normal in the industry. Uh, bottles with natural cork can actually have up to an 8% failure of the cork, and the wine tastes off, uh, tastes like damp, musty basement, smells like damp, musty basement. That's something that happens with natural corks, and it's unavoidable. So this, this particular wine, uh, uh, again, this comes from the southeastern part of Spain. Uh, and it's a really good example of how the Spanish wine industry has changed uh, over the last 50 years. Um, prior to 1975, uh, when Spain was basically run by a dictator under Franco, uh, you had a lot, of, uh, a lot of poor quality Spanish wine, uh, because Spain had not caught up to the rest of the wine world in terms of its quality. Uh, after that, uh, uh, Spain has had a lot of investments in new wineries that have come in and have taken what's one of the world's oldest wine-growing regions and really modernized how that wine is made. This particular uh, bodega uh, was uh, formed in 2011 when some investors decided to uh, to uh, come in and form this winery, and uh, it's a great example of when you when you uh, bring in some quality control of how you can produce some really top-notch wines. Spain still has the most acreage of, of grapes planted in the world. Mm. They're third in wine production behind Italy and France, so uh, they are catching up, uh, and you can often find when we first started doing the column, uh, we would find great bargains on Spanish wines a lot, and 
they've kind of come up in price a little bit now, but you can still find some excellent wines. Well, you've been doing this column since 2003, but fans of wine well before then. What are some of the other trends you've seen over the years? Um, I mean, you mentioned synthetic corks, I'm sure, are, is, is something that's more common today than it used to be. What other things have you discovered? I think one of the things that we've seen more over the past five to ten years is an explosion in red blends and also some white ben, white blends, but a lot of reds, which in our country, uh, particularly with California being the dominant, there's always been, I'm going to buy a Cabernet or I'm going to buy a Chardonnay or I'm going to buy a Merlot, when of course the French have blended wine for years. And, and uh, I think we are slow to catch on over here when it comes to the red blends, but that certainly part of the wine shelf in the retail store has just exploded over the years with many more blends. And as someone who buys wine occasionally at the grocery store, you know, it, it can be overwhelming because there are so many things. And it's, I'm sure some uh, bottlers look and try to attract you with a flashy label. Uh, some, you know, and in, in some have uh, the real cork, some have just the twist top, some even have the box. I mean, are there anything out there that you would say, oh gosh, just never buy a wine that's in a box or never buy a wine or or is, are there no hard and fast rules like that we try not to buy wines that are priced under three dollars <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a good rule that's uh, a really good rule there is uh uh you know there is the hierarchy in the store uh you know top shelf bottom shelf mm -hmm. and uh we like to focus on the middle shelves occasionally we reach to the top shelf but you can find some some really good bargain wines uh, on the on those middle shelves. Find excellent wine for ten to fifteen dollars. There's a lot of it to be had out there, and there's a lot of new wine coming out all the time. Lots of great product at that price line. So in terms of the packaging, uh, we've had actually had some pretty good uh, boxed wines uh, because uh, if you get past the fact it's in the box, inside of that is an airtight plastic container that's not going to impart any uh, bad flavors on the wine and it stays fresh for for a long time uh, I'm not so sure about the canned wine that <laughs> that we're gonna uh, have have to see as more wines uh, come out in cans um, but yeah if you get past the pack the fact that it's in a box there's actually some decent wines that can be had actually another trend is screw top which used to be a, a laugh line and now some terrific wine is produced with screw top because, as Sherry says, if you've had one of those musty bottles where the cork fails, you've invested a pretty good amount of money in something that you end up pouring down the drain because it smells like a sweat sock and it tastes like one too. So not too much fun. Now you mentioned cans. Wine Spectator actually does a little feature in this month's edition about canned wine and how more and more vintners are going to that because, again, it's more portable, uh, won't break, doesn't risk cork taint. So um, I think more and more consumers are going to have to be a little more flexible about packaging, and some are embracing that too. It's very true. You know, the interesting thing about, uh, about the corkscrew uh, and or the screw top uh, is that... Uh, the only wines that, that are not going to those, though, are your really big Cabernets and some of those wines that continue to evolve over time. Because the minute that you put a screw top on your wine, it stops maturing. It, it, it is what it is. 
because you're not getting that minute flow of oxygen that you would get through a natural cork. And so I, you know, I don't see all screw tops in the future because I still think that there's going to be a demand for the natural cork, particularly for those really big reds. And we mentioned that, you know, the, the, your column started here in 2003. Your interest in wine even was before then. But maybe you could tell our listeners uh, where your love for wine led professionally. Well, our first wine that we made uh, at home uh, from our farm was from blackberries, and that was like 35-odd years ago. But how we really got into wine, um, visited Willersheim Winery at a cousin's wedding down in Prairie de Sac many years ago, and we liked the Riesling. And then uh, one day we were in La Crosse, uh, happened to be in Mr. Artsell, the elders, uh, the king of wine and liquors, his uh, wonderful shop downtown, uh, buying raspberry liqueur for a recipe for a cheesecake. And we had a bottle of Riesling. We were on our way out of the store. It was Monday morning, about 9 or 10 o'clock, as soon as they opened. Mr. Sell asked if we liked wine. And... Uh, we said, yeah, and we liked Johannesburg Riesling, and he kind of, uh, you know, made a face, grimaced, and said, I've got lots better stuff than that. And he said, have you ever been to my tasting room before? And we said, no. He said, follow me. So we went through this, uh, it was like a maze, uh, through his back storerooms to a tasting counter at the very back of the building. It had only three or four seats, um, he put on an 8-track tape player with <laughs> Oktoberfest music and started pulling out about 20 bottles of wine from the cooler. And as he started turning, pulling out the reds, we said to him, oh, no, no, stop there. We don't, we don't need any reds. We're not interested in reds. We don't like reds. And um, he said, I will have you on reds within one year. <laughs> we said, no way. And we tasted all of his wines. They were all fabulous. He said, which ones would you like? I said, which ones don't we want? And we ended up um, with no intention, having walked in that store that morning, uh, leaving with a case of wonderful wine. And what we needed was someone way more knowledgeable than us to point us in the right direction and say, here's some great stuff you want to try. And that's what we hope we're doing for people now. And that led to the uh, uh, development uh, eventually of Brambleberry Winery. Uh, so um, we uh, had opened up a bed and breakfast in 2006, and we were sharing some of our homemade wine with guests because in Wisconsin, if you have a bed and breakfast license, you can share up to eight ounces, eight ounces of wine with, with without your a guests. Carefully license. measured every time. Of course. And we had a lot of people that were interested in our wine. They wanted to buy our wine, and of course we couldn't, we couldn't sell it to them. Um, but we started to do a little more research and decided that a winery and a bed and breakfast might make a, a good business model. And uh, so we decided to uh, embark down the pathway of starting a winery. Uh, had to get a, re a referendum passed because our town was dry by statute. Which is hard to believe in the state of Wisconsin. I know. There are a few that are still around, um, but we managed to get a referendum passed and then started the federal approval process. Uh, wineries are regulated on a federal, state, and a local level. Um, and then uh, opened up uh, Brambleberry Winery. And our focus is uh, on wines of the world, kind of similar to our, uh, to our column. Um, we bring in the finest juice from around the world, uh, make the wines on site, and share them with our customers. Now, I know you two love wine, love pairing it, love just tasting. What varietal to the two of you just absolutely disagree on? 
that Chris loves and you don't like cherry or vice versa? Oh, I would say he likes uh, Melbeck a lot more than I do. <laughs> and Carmenere. Uh, Carmenere, yes, th- both of those he likes. Uh, they're lower on my list. I prefer French and Italian varieties. I like the big Super Tuscans. Uh, and I think on the whites, um, I maybe have a tendency to enjoy some of the whites a little more than, uh, than, than Cherry does. But we do agree on... Uh, we both like the big buttery oaky Chardonnays. We're not fans of, of the non-oak Chardonnay. It's interesting because Chardonnay, for those of you who don't know, has a lot of different styles, and some love the big buttery oaky, and some want it uh, fermented in a steel tank so that it doesn't have that uh, barrel flavoring, that, that oakiness. So even among even within a varietal, there are different styles that uh, you learn by tasting. Yeah, absolutely. And Chardonnay is a very versatile grape, uh, and it is one of the few white wines that that you can actually use oak with. Uh, most white wines would not benefit from any oak aging, and so um, you can you can age your Chardonnay in oak to pick up a little bit of that, and then you can also uh, send it through a secondary fermi- uh, fermentation process called malolactic fermentation, and that uh, that malolactic acid creates that big buttery creamy. Uh, hence lactic, lactose-like milk. It gives that kind of that creamy finish. Some people really love it, some people don't, um, And uh, but Chardonnay is still by far the top, top-selling wine in, in, our, in our country. Uh, there are just many, many people that still enjoy it. Now, the Tribune certainly not locked you into a long-term contract to write the column, but assuming you continue to, what trends do you see over the next few years that you expect in the wine industry that maybe we'll be talking about more two, three, four years out than we are today? You know, what's interesting is uh, how some old becomes new again and new becomes old again. A few years ago, all the rage was Moscato, Moscato, Moscato. And that's because there were a lot of younger wine drinkers entering the market. And of course, Moscato is a very sweet, easy wine to, uh, to begin with. Uh, there's been more interest in some of the uh, sangria fruit blends. Rosé sales have really increased again, and rosé is uh, again one of those. It used to be your grandmother's wine, precisely, and 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 it comes back. And so I think that uh, again, as as more people are exposed to wine, uh, they'll move up and down the wine scale, and and I think. Uh, one thing is for certain is we're going to see more and more labels on the shelves uh, because uh, there are more and more wineries that are opening up. There are contract wineries. There's many, many different ways. Yeah, that, the contract wineries. There are so many new uh, labels coming out there, but there isn't actually a bricks-and-mortar winery that exists. Uh, so many people are doing contract brewing. Uh, the winery only exists on paper. They're paying someone else to make their product, bottle it, and even label it. And uh, there's probably a lot more of that going to be going on. Because it's about marketing. We've had a chance to taste the wine. What do you think? Well, just as was on the nose, the cherry flavor, I'm tasting a bright uh, cherry flavor and a little bit of rose floral essence on here, too, and definitely a, a hint of clove on the finish. 
So I'm picking up definitely cherry, uh, a little bit of raspberry, and a little bit of vanilla, which uh, comes from the oak aging. This wine was aged for a couple of, uh, couple of months in oak. And very firm uh, tannins because uh, this wine is made with grapes that, that uh, are very dry and thick-skinned, so they have those tannins as well. Now, what kind of a meal would you pair this with? I think it's perfectly fine on its own, which I think any good wine is. But uh, it's, uh, as you said, part uh, Mouvedre, if you use the non-Spanish term, and part uh, Syrah or Shiraz. So um, what kind of a meal would you think this would really highlight? I think this has a lot of flexibility. It's very versatile. Um, uh, my personal favorite probably with this would be the cut pork chop on the grill, uh, also grilled chicken, grilled meats. Because that charred, that charred flavor of the grill really pairs well with, with, the, uh, uh, with this wine, uh, and red wines have a tendency to really go well with charcoal meat. And because of the tannins, it would stand up to just about any kind of charcoal meat. Yes, and also this could be served with beef to red meats, would be great with this wine. We thank you for bringing in a delicious bottle of Spanish wine today. You're very welcome. <laughs>